want to think a little bit this morning about seven fathers. This is not going to be a message about fatherhood. It's not a message for Father's Day or a message that's designed to encourage those who are fathers to be better fathers. Rather, what I want to think about is how we can improve or enhance our relationship with our own Heavenly Father, with God, who is our Father. And uh, I'd like to look with you at a little study in the Gospel of John, where seven fathers are identified, and we can look at them and see how we can grow in our relationship with God through the example of these seven fathers. I thank the Lord for my own father. I had a father who was a godly man, and I appreciate him very much, and he taught me much. But you know, I, I come at this with a bit of trepidation. I think that more and more uh, our society is, is a place where many people don't have good experiences with fathers. And uh, I'm sure there are some here today who don't have fond recollections of fathers the way I do. Many people have failed as fathers or have fathers who, who weren't there for them and so on. I understand that. And I was interested as I looked through the Gospel of John that, in fact, the Scripture recognizes this too. Not all of the fathers that are presented are, are positive examples, but we can learn from all of them nonetheless. And uh, we'll see that today, Lord willing, in our, in our little study together. So seven fathers that are identified in John's Gospel, and um, we'll see if we can draw something from them. The first uh, of them is, is, of course, God himself, who is our Father. And in John chapter 20, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to that verse. I've put part of it up on the screen there. But in John chapter 20, the Lord speaks about his Father. And in verse 17, after he has risen from the dead, Mary comes across him and he identifies himself to Mary. Mary recognizes him as the Lord. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God, and your God. These are tremendous words of the Lord, and in them we come to understand that the one who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is also our Father if we choose to put our faith and trust in Him. If we will accept the teaching of the Lord and follow after Him, then God Himself becomes our Father, and the one who is the Father of the Lord is our Father. Now, more than any other uh, reference in, in John's Gospel, we have this reference to God as Father. This is the chief and primary uh, reference to the Father, is to God as Father in John's Gospel, in fact, through the Word of God. More, more than any other, God is identified as Father. 114 times alone in John's Gospel, we read that, that God is Father. In John's writings, his gospel and his epistles, we have God referred to as Father more than in all of the balance of Scripture combined. John has a lot to say about God as Father, and we can learn a lot from it. 
There is a rich relationship between the Father and the Son, and John develops that between Jesus Christ and his Father. But we can pause and marvel that God is also the Father of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, the Lord says. In John's Gospel, we learn about new birth, by which we gain entrance into God's family. It's here in John's Gospel that we, that we come to understand that knowing the Father is achieved through knowing the Son. We come to know Jesus Christ, and as we get to know Jesus Christ, we come to know God our Father. We learn and, and know about the Father by knowing the Son. There is affirmation in John's Gospel that the Father loves us just as he loves the Son. Marvelous as that is in our minds. We thought a little bit about that this morning at our earlier service, that God loves us as he loves Christ. Amazing when you think about it. Christ uh, loves us, but the Father loves us, and, and he appeals to us to fellowship with him. God desires to have a relationship with us. God wants to be uh, a close father to us with intimate fellowship and relationship with himself. He wants to embrace us. He wants us to be close to himself. He wants us to speak with him. He wants us to talk with him as a loving father cares for his children. God is our father. Now, the idea of God being a father was, was uh, kind of a, mostly a New Testament teaching. It was much rarer to hear these references in the Old Testament. They are there. There are a number of times in the Old Testament where we read about God as a father, but not very frequently. And certainly the people to whom Jesus was ministering appeared to be quite unfamiliar with the idea. In fact, they were offended when the Lord suggested that God was his father, and perhaps even more so when he encouraged his disciples to understand and to see God as, as their father and to pray our Father who art in heaven, for example. And this was a great offense to, to many in the community in which the Lord ministered and served. But those who listened to Christ's words came to understand and to appreciate that God is indeed our Father and wants to have that kind of a relationship with us. So here is a lesson for us. I get James on the on that end to help me out. Thank you. A growth lesson, if you would, growing in our relationship with the Lord. That our Heavenly Father wants to draw us close to Himself in a deep and personal relationship with Himself. You know, David wrote in the Psalms, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. And he's speaking of God here in his marvelous act of creation. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? I look at the stars. I look at these images from that telescope that's just been opened up, and I see the vastness of space, and I see that God has created a marvelous expanse of universe. 
Why is he concerned about me? On this little speck of a planet Earth. But he is. God cares for me, and he cares for you. He wants to be a father to us. He wants an intimate relationship. Not just that he has noticed us here, but much deeper than that. He wants to embrace us, to draw him into himself, to have a relationship, a personal relationship with us. He wants to be our father. He is the perfect father. And Christ has confirmed that the one who is his father is our father as well. Back one more, please. There we go. Second father we want to look at, we read about in John chapter 4. Again, if you have a Bible, you might just turn back to John chapter 4 and look at this uh, reference to another father that we read of. John chapter 4, we find a woman at the well, and uh, she is having an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And she says this in, in John chapter 4 and verse 12, verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? The Lord has said that he would give her living water. And then she raises this question, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? You know, I had an opportunity to visit my family, the old family homestead, where my, my father grew up and my grandparents lived out on the Canadian prairie. I was about 54 years of age, I think, when I visited the family, the old family farm. And it was a joy to walk on, on that ground. On the, it wasn't completely flat prairie in this particular section. It was a bit of rolling hill. And uh, there on that uh, farmstead, we could see the remnants of the old foundation of the house that my father lived in as a child. And, and I could see to the side the well where they drew water. Didn't have running water back when he lived in that house. They would go out to the well. And it was precious to me to experience that and to see that uh, old farmstead and to understand my father walked around these grounds. More so because I remember him telling stories of how he would go out on a cold night, minus 35 degrees out in the prairie. And his, his responsibility, one of his chores was to go out and draw water out of the well. And he'd, he'd say how he went with a metal bucket and they'd pull the water out of the well and he could put that metal bucket on the ground on those cold days and look at the surface of the water and see the ice forming on the surface of the water. He could watch it crystallizing as he watched. He described those experiences. So as I walked those grounds, I thought about some of these experiences of my father. It was a precious time. That old farmstead is still in the family. It was passed down from my grandfather to my uncle and then from my uncle to my cousin. And it's a wonderful heritage that, uh, that we have. More precious to the community at Sychar was this well that they had in their community. A well that had not just a couple of generations of heritage, but one that had been with them for centuries, generation after generation, countless generations going back 1,700 years to the days of Jacob. When Jacob and his family would go to that well and draw water from that well to sustain their families and their livestock. And as the years went by, 
Families continued to come to that well, passed down from generation to generation. And this woman remembered that. She knew that. She knew the story as did all the community of that well. Jacob had provided this well. Jacob himself had drunk from this well. It was a great heritage that Jacob had provided. Fathers sometimes provide a cherished legacy for their families. And that was the case here. But the Lord came to this woman and said, I have something for you that is more precious than the water you're getting from this well, more precious than the heritage that you have in, in this institution of this well. I can provide for you living water, water that will sustain you, not just physically, but spiritually, water that will sustain you not just for a time, but for eternity, precious water. And so perhaps the lesson that we can learn from this father, Jacob, is, is this lesson, that our Heavenly Father, oh, let's keep going, or I'm going backwards, I'm sorry. Our spiritual inheritance is of far greater value than any physical possessions handed down from our parents. We have a Father in heaven, and he has a rich blessing for us. We are told that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ have a heritage which is far more precious than anything you receive from your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. You have all the blessings that God has in store for us. And all of the blessings that he attained as he died on the cross at Calvary to win them for us. And our loving Heavenly Father wants to give them to us. He wants to shed them to us, to bring them, bring us into the benefit of them. The people of Sychar, as the generations passed, valued the blessing of that well. And we value the things that our parents hand down to us. But a far greater value are the spiritual treasures that God has for us. <coughs> As children of God, we are heirs. We are joint heirs with Christ of a great inheritance that we cannot now even imagine. Father number three. Just a little later in the same chapter, here in chapter four. We read about a nobleman. He's described as a nobleman in the New King James Version. Nobleman who had a sick child and he was concerned for this sick child. He came running to the Lord because he knew that the Lord could do something for him. He knew that only the Lord could do something for him. He knew that without the intervention of the Lord, his child would die. With a very heavy heart, he rushed to find the Lord and uh, with a great sense of urgency, he, he went down that road 30 kilometers from his home to the place where Jesus was. 
and sought him out and implored him to come and help, to come to his home and to, to touch his child, who was at the point of death. The Lord's response was interesting. If you have your Bibles open at chapter 4 of John, the Lord's response to the man was this in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. When I read that, my initial thought is, that's a harsh response on the part of the Lord. The Lord saying, you, you people, you don't, you don't believe. Unless you see signs, you don't believe. Here's a man whose child is dying. His heart is breaking. And the Lord responds to him in this way. Might seem harsh to me at first, but I, I, I've come to realize that what the Lord was doing was that he was about to teach the people, the crowds that were around, a great lesson about faith, something that was vitally important. He says to the man, go your way, your son lives. Now at this point, this nobleman has a choice to make. He had come to get the Lord to come and bring him to his house, take him with him to his place, to, to where the child was sick, to touch his child and to bring him to life. And now the Lord is saying, no, just go ahead. Is it true? What he wanted was for the Lord to come so that he could see that his child was well. But now he was going to have to do something that the Lord had just spoken about. He was going to have to exercise faith without seeing. He was going to have to believe that what the Lord was saying was true. Should he return home in confidence that what's happened, what the Lord has said has truly happened without seeing it? Or should he, should he persist in insisting that the Lord come with him to his home? This man demonstrated his faith, his conduct demonstrated his faith. His faith was evident through his actions. He immediately left that place and went on his way back home to his home, accepting and trusting in faith that what God had said would happen, has happened. The Lord commends this kind of faith. Remember that he rebuked Thomas because Thomas didn't show this kind of faith. Doubting Thomas, we refer to him often as. Thomas, who said, unless I see in his hands the nail print of his, the print of the nails, I, I won't believe. And the Lord says, blessed is he who has not seen and yet has believed. This man exercised this kind of faith. He believed that what the Lord had said was going to happen. And he went on his way home. I wonder, as he made that trek home, as he went back over those 30 kilometers, as he was traveling along the way, if he didn't have doubts, he didn't kind of second guess. Should I have been more persistent? Should I have? Is it true? I wonder. I wonder if he had those kinds of doubts. I don't know. I don't know. But as he was going along the way, servants from his home came and met him and said, your child is alive, he's okay. 
And the father, the story tells us, asked what time these things took place. And I want you to notice this in particular in verse 53. When he was told what hour these things happened, the father knew, verse 53, that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. It's interesting to me because this nobleman earlier in verse 50 is described this way. When the Lord said to him, go your way, your son lived, we read, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way. But now, on hearing that it was the very hour in which the Lord said that to him, that his son was made well, we read once again, the man believed and his whole household. I believe that there are our degrees of faith, our levels of faith, different kinds of faith. You know, there's one thing to just accept a fact, kind of academically, and understand it to be true. But I, I believe that this second line, this one that we have on the screen in front of us in verse 53, where it says the man believed in his whole household is something deeper. This is faith that the Lord elsewhere describes as faith in him. Not just believing what he says, but placing faith and confidence in Christ. We sometimes use that expression, don't we, that we believe in Jesus Christ. What do we mean by that? We believe in him. I want to suggest that it ought to be something more than just that we believe him but we believe in him. In John chapter 3, we are called to that kind of faith. In fact, in John chapter 3, it also says that we believe in his name. What does it mean to believe in his name? It's the kind of faith which entrusts our lives to the Lord Jesus. The kind of faith that, that uh, we can learn from. Christ is looking for the kind of faith that entrusts our whole lives to him. Not just accepting academically what he has said, but submitting ourselves into him, trusting and trusting him with our lives. This is the kind of faith that the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for in the lives of those who would follow him. And I believe that's the kind of faith that this man exercised when he came to understand the power of the Lord and to appreciate what God had done in healing his son. And when he shared with his family all of this experience, and they didn't just believe the words of the Lord, but they entrusted their lives to him, and they believed in him. So the nobleman presents to us an example of exemplary faith. Let's look at father number four. In uh, chapter 6 of John's Gospel, we read of the, our, our next father, father number 4. I wonder what you, how you respond when somebody says to you, I knew your father. Has anybody ever said that to you? I knew your father. 
I've had some people say that from time to time to me, and, and I, I can say that it generally gives me a good feeling. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. When somebody says to me, they knew my father, but brings a smile to my face. We share fond recollections of my father. I know that others might, might not always feel that way. There are, there are some who, if they're sold, I knew your father, they might say, eh, what exactly did you know about my father? You know, uh, might bring different kinds of responses because the reality is that in some way we're, we're tied, we're connected to our father by in our identity. People identify with us in that they identify with our fathers. And uh, this is the case, whether it's for good or bad, we often are tied with our identity to our, to our parents. And uh, that's just the reality of life. In the times of the Bible, it was even more so. People were known generally in an age before they had surnames or a culture where they didn't have surnames, the people would be known by, by their name and then often by the appended to that their father's name. And so we have, we have descriptions of people like Simon, the son of Jonas, or James and John, the sons of Zebedee. You know, the names are, are the descriptor of their character and their person is, is that of themselves and that of their father. And uh, that's how it was in the days of the Lord. And so when Philip first encountered the Lord back in John chapter 1. It's, it's not surprising that, that we read him say, he runs to his friend Nathaniel and says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The son of Joseph. Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. And the Lord's identity was tied to the identity of Joseph. And so um, when the Lord started to make claims that he was the son of God, this rubbed people the wrong way because he was known in the community as Jesus, the son of Joseph. They knew of his human father. And they said in 6 and 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? The Lord knew that his true father was God. God was his father. Joseph was a, a man, of course. He wasn't actually the father of the Lord, physically speaking at all, but in the community he was seen as the father. And Jesus treated Joseph and Mary with great respect. Scripture affirms that he was submissive to them, and uh, he respected them and honored them right to the day of his death. You'll recall on the cross, he hung on the cross. He was concerned for the welfare of his mother and reached out to ensure that John would care for his mother. So he cared for those who were his physically, but he knew that his true family, his real family, were his spiritual family. And the Lord understood this. The Lord's identity on earth was tied to Joseph, but the Lord's true identity is tied to his heavenly father. <coughs> You know, the Lord's tie to his earthly family is important, to Mary and to Joseph, because he was a man. He was God, but he was a man. He was the son of God. He was also the son of man. He was a man for a purpose. He came to this earth as a man, because as a man, he could go to the cross and die on a cross. As a man, he could identify with you and I. 
As a man, he took our sins upon himself. As a man, they put nails through his hands and his feet. And he bore our sins on the cross at Calvary. And he rose again from the dead as a man. He is today a man in glory. So his humanity is important, and we need to understand that. But he is also the Son of God. And the Lord understood that his identity was tied to that of his heavenly Father. The Lord embraces those who trust him. And the Lord calls those brothers and sisters and welcomes them into the family of God who put their trust in him. We become children of our Heavenly Father. The Lord's claims to be the Son of God are what led people to stone him. Here in this account, in chapter 10, they tried to stone him because he claimed to be the Son of God. It was his claims to be God's Son that ultimately led to them putting him to the cross and killing him there. But he identified with his heavenly Father. He identified with God. Lesson number four from Joseph. We need to embrace and confess our identity as children of God. As much as I love my earthly father, he's with the Lord now, but as much as I respect him and appreciate him, I realize that far greater importance is my relationship with my heavenly father. And we need to be identifying with him. Those who are the Lord's ought to identify with the Lord and to recognize that he is our father. And we need to embrace all that we have in him. And I put in here also to confess it. Sometimes, you know, I feel that I am weak in that. When I stand before a crowd, when I'm in a group of people, how quick am I to acknowledge that I am a child of God, that I follow my heavenly Father, and proud to make that known. I'm happy to have people know that I am the son of Harry Blair. If you happen to have known him, that's great. How much happier I ought to be to let people know that I'm a child of God, my Heavenly Father. My identity is with Him. Let's go on to Father number five. Father number five. In chapter eight, there's a great debate that goes on in John's Gospel, a great debate between the Lord and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And uh, they get into quite a heated discussion. And we'll just break in at verse 53, where, where in, in anger the, the people say, Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Abraham reminds us, the mention of Abraham reminds us that a father often has a respected position. 
In some cultures, this is particularly so, more so perhaps than in our day and in our society. But there are places where the patriarch of the family, or the matriarch in some cases, but we think about fathers here, the patriarch of the family has a very high and respected position, and you give honor to the patriarch of the family for perhaps sometimes no other reason than that that's what he is. He's the senior member of the family, and so he's due respect and honor. That was certainly the case in, in the Lord's day. There was honor and respect given to the one who is the patriarch, and, and, and there is no other greater patriarch than the patriarch Abraham. The people of the nation were, were proud to be children of Abraham. There was great pride in association with him. He was the founder. He was the, the foundation of the nation, if you would. <coughs> Israel, the name, Israel as a nation was named after the grandchild of Abraham, but it's no question that Abraham was the undisputed father of the nation of Israel. The problem that the Lord saw was this, that the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, weren't conducting themselves in a way that was bringing honor to Abraham, in a way that was respecting the things that Abraham did or the things that Abraham believed. And the reality is that we can bring disrespect to the Father. We can bring disrespect to our family by the way we conduct ourselves, by the things that we say or don't say, the things that we do. We can bring disrespect to our family. And that's what the nation of Israel was doing. The Lord would say to them, the Lord said to them, if you're children of Abraham, you need to be acting like Abraham acted. You should be respecting the things that Abraham respecting. You should be bringing honor to him. But they were not. The primary commendation of Abraham was this, that he was a man of faith. He was a man who trusted God. He was a man who believed God, and the Lord would point out to them that Abraham was one who pointed to me. Are you greater than our father Abraham, they asked? The answer to that was, in fact, yes, absolutely, he is greater. And the Lord made that point emphatically when he said to them, there on that occasion, before Abraham was, I am. And if you were children of God, if you were children of faith, if you were children of Abraham, you would understand that Abraham's life pointed to me. And you need to be people of faith, as Abraham was a person of faith. So we can learn a lesson from Abraham. True children of Abraham demonstrate faith in Christ, show respect and honor for their greater father, <coughs> who is God. <clears throat> Not all of the fathers that we have presented to us are good. 
And in this same chapter, we read of father number six. None other than Satan himself. In verse 44, Satan is identified as a father. He says in verse 44, the Lord himself says this, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand for the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We have expressions that I'm sure you've heard, expressions like this one. She comes by it honestly. What does that mean when we say that? Or like this, this expression, like father, like son. You've heard that? The chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. These expressions all convey one simple truth that tends to be a reality in our, in our society and in our lives, that often children take on the characteristics of their parents, and you can see it in them. Like the child, like the father did, so the child often does. Sometimes this is something we take delight in. It's, it's a joy when I drive in the neighborhood and I drive by and see a dad mowing his lawn and there behind him is one of his children following along a little toy lawnmower, you know, following along to mow the lawn. Sadly, we see it sometimes in a negative sense where we see teenagers falling prey to, to the same destructive addictions that their, their parents fell into. But it is so often the case that we, we take on the traits and actions and character of our parents, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Intentionally or otherwise, whether it's learned or generic, we often pick up the traits of our father and his parents. We need to be careful about that because young eyes are watching. Those of you who are parents, be careful. Be aware. The Jewish leaders behaved more like Satan than like God, tragically. And the Lord confronts them about it. Satan was a liar and a murderer. Strong language. But that's what these people were in, in, engaged in. They would take the Lord Jesus to the cross at Calvary and murder him based on lies they would put together, following the traits and characteristics of their father. The Bible is a, a great chronicle, a great epic story. We might wonder if we're trapped in that way in our genetics, is that, that we have no choice, is that we are stuck because of you know, uh, it's not my fault. Uh, I was born that way. But the Bible tells us that doesn't need to be the case. It's not the truth. We're not trapped in that way. The epic story of the Bible presents to us the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, how they rejected God, 
turned away from him, decided to go their own way. The story of the Bible is a story of redemption. It's the story of God finding a way to bring us back to himself. A story of how God intervened to rescue us so that we are not subjected to the whims of our evil nature. How the Lord, through his death on the cross, has empowered us to make choices to live for him. We don't have to follow the tendencies of our, our sinful nature, but through the spirit of God that he gives to those who are his own, we can choose to do right and to do good, to act as we ought to before God, as children of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can choose to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. We are children of God, not children of Satan. We are children of God, and we can reflect his character. Whose character do you reflect day by day in your life? Great lesson for us we can learn from this chapter. Let's go to the last father to finish up. And this last one is not so much an individual father, but it is a, it's a compilation, if you would. There are three times in John's gospel where the fathers are referenced as a way of referring to, if you would, ancestors, forefathers, things that came down to us from our forefathers. <coughs> the woman at the well, we read about her earlier, John chapter 4, she said this when the Lord confronted her. She kind of changed the subject a little bit when he talked about living water. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She deflected from what the Lord was trying to say about the living water, and she got distracted by some of the differences that she had in her thinking. And I think there are some lessons for us in this. For this woman, her culture and her traditions passed down, influenced her religion and her life. Culture and traditions are, are formed through cherished practices and beliefs that are passed down from generation to generation. And these things meant a great deal to the people in the society and Jesus lived, and they continue to mean a great deal to people today. In this case, this woman's religion was wrapped up in the traditions that she had received from her father. But the Lord directed her to a very different way of thinking. The Lord directed her to the, to the need that she needed to remove the blinders of her tradition and to see that God was looking for those who would worship in spirit and in truth, not in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim, where she was concerned. She was tied up in the traditions of her father's and, and so was blinded to some spiritual truth. A little later in the gospel, we read about crowds that asked the Lord for a sign, sign of his authority, a sign like the fathers had experienced when manna came down from heaven. Chapter 6 and verses 28 to 33. They were caught up in the religion of Moses' signs and symbols, but the Lord redirected their thinking and showed them that Moses' life and teaching pointed to the Messiah, the true bread from heaven. 
they needed to focus, have their focus redirected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 7, we read a third incident of the fathers, where there was an accusation that the Lord was breaking the Sabbath. There was a, a suggestion that circumcision was from the fathers, and the Lord was was uh, was breaking some rules around the practice of circumcision. Their religion was bound up in their father's ancient and, and convoluted interpretations of the law. We can sometimes be guilty of that as well. <coughs> Christ pointed out the hypocrisy of their position and challenged them to adjust their judgments to truly align with God's thinking and with God's standards and purposes. The lesson we might draw from this is very simple and important, I think, for us. Our allegiance to tradition can sometimes blind us to important spiritual truth. Culture has value, there's no question. Culture is important, and traditions are not bad in and of themselves. Many of them are good. But we must distinguish between tradition and truth. It's easy to fall into a trap of viewing our own practices as, as the standards of God and equating them with God's word in terms of their authority. And this is wrong, and the church has often been guilty of this. The Lord reprimanded the people of his day for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, Matthew 15 and 9. And we still fall into this trap. Too often we say, well, we've always done it that way. We've always done it that way. And sometimes these blinders can affect us. And our tendency to avoid any deviation from the established and the familiar can be a hindrance to growth and can limit our potential for serving the Lord. And I know that this is a lesson that I in particular need to take to heart, and perhaps some others here today. But here overall we have seven lessons that might help us to grow in our relationship with God. Seven fathers who teach us some things about how we ought to live and how we ought to think and how we ought to conduct ourselves. And I hope that this will be of some help to you as it has been to me as I've reflected on it. May the Lord help us. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word and for its depth and its richness to us. We pray that you would bless us as we think about these things, as we meditate on them. We thank you that you are not just our God, but you are our Father, and that you care for us, and that you draw us into a close, close relationship with ourselves. We marvel at this intimate care that you have for us when we consider the vast expanse of your creation and all that you are and all that you do. We praise you and thank you for your loving care for each one of us. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen.